do you think or feel when you hear the word Britpop? <laughs> Every time I hear the word Britpop, a little part of me dies. I'm sorry, I know you're making a program about how brilliant it all was, but bollocks. Youch! That is a damning appraisal by Blur bassist Alex James, who apparently can't say the word Britpop without bile rising to the top of his throat. Sorry, Alex, Britpop, Britpop, Britpop. But if you're not Alex James and you're, I don't know, somewhere between Gen X and old millennial and grew up or came of age in the early 90s, then Britpop probably means something very different to you. I mean, maybe you remember slow dancing to Wonderwall down at the Legion Hall or, you know, racing to the store to get the latest copy of NME so you could read about Elastica. I don't know. My name is John Semley, and I'm here to welcome you to This Is Pop, the podcast, a podcast about This Is Pop, which is an eight-part documentary series by Banger Films exploring 70 years of pop music, from its many disputed origins to its coming of age as a global cultural behemoth. And guess what? That same series is now streaming on Netflix. Today, we're diving into the world of, you guessed it, Britpop. And surprising pretty much no one who knows anything about Britpop, we're going to be talking a bit about the media-made clash between two Britpop titans, Blur and Oasis. We'll be talking about them quite a bit. So let's dive right in, shall we? We're joined by This Is Pop series producer Amanda Burt and director Reg Harkema. Hello, Reg. Hello, Amanda. Hello, John. Hi, John. Now, to start, this episode follows a you know pretty straight-ahead, clear chronology. Uh, like a lot of good stories, it goes from beginning to end. Uh, were there other sort of formats, Reg, that you experimented with in trying to tell the story of the Battle of Britpop? Well, not really, you know. I mean, the thing about the uh, uh, Britpop scene and all those bands and all the venues and uh, all, all the uh, DJ nights that they hung out at is uh, it can be, become quite a list of uh, uh, Wikipedia, right? So uh, um, we had to kind of figure out, like, a uh, boil it down to an essential uh, kind of overview that brought in, like, you know, all the major players that any normal uh, big-time streamer or broadcaster would want to have. So that ultimately became, well, what can we say about Oasis and Britpop? And they their kind of uh, conflict and drama was better served in a uh, chronological fashion. I mean, I also had one producer uh, um, I've worked with in the past who told me one day that uh, um, the word chronological has the word logical in it. So rather than on a tight schedule, spend all this time trying to come up with uh, 32 short films about uh, Britpop, um, we decided to kind of just go from A to B. But, you know, within that, the, we, 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 we uh, messed around a little bit, you know. I mean, the uh, entire, like, we, we talk about uh, park life being the, the beginning of Britpop, but, you know, modern life is rubbish, uh, uh, was there, you know, Suede, as uh, Simon mentioned in the previous interview, was actually a major figure, but, you know, they get kind of like a little mention in passing and in the middle of uh, the second section, you know, they, they were sort of initiating it before Blur. Um, 
but just in terms of like the drama that Oasis and Brip or uh, Blur created, it, it was felt better just to deal with it chronologically. Yeah, and, and one thing with this series, I mean, it's always hard to say, okay, we have a big topic or a big moment or a big subject. How are we going to fit it into 43 minutes? But as we discussed with this, the quote, battle of Britpop and the whole movement was so short-lived, it almost feels like the difficulty would be how to get to 43 minutes. I mean, can you talk a bit about trying which parts of the story you wanted to sort of inflate and focus on uh, and which you, you kind of had to, to pare away? Oh my God, originally we wanted to do 43 minutes just on the Battle of Britpop. Just okay. that week. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, we're going to do it all archive, you know, and we'll just like have the experience of people kind of going crazy. And then we, we all had the collective realization one time that, uh, oh, it's it's not a counter like, oh, Oasis is ahead and then Blur's ahead and Oasis is ahead. It's, it's kind of like everyone is buying these records uh, without really knowing. And then it's kind of revealed at the end. So there wasn't any sort of continuous uh, 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 ticking clock of drama. And then every time you brought up the Battle of Britpop when you were approaching some of the major players, they were like, oh, I don't want to do something about that stupid thing again. So eventually we end up turning it into a, a one segment uh, um, and then expanding it out uh, uh, from there. And quite frankly, like I say, you know, with uh, stuff like, oh, the Syndrome Night down in Camden, and, uh, you know, various of these other micro scenes that were surrounding. If you really wanted to do like the uh, the Eagles doc or Grateful Dead doc version of Britpop, you could do that. Um, so in many ways, we were kind of fortunate to be uh, uh, restricted by 43 minutes. It's too bad that all the HMVs in the UK weren't reporting sales like they were polling stations. And then you could kind of uh, should, use that. They should do that, time. man. Get the side bets going. Oh, this will be the, ahead by three o'clock. <laughs> now, the, the tone of the episode feels like it's kind of building towards a climax, and then it kind of deflates at, a bit at the end. Uh, was that an effort to mirror something of the, the British tabloid culture? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, it's just kind of what happened, right? You know, I mean, it's Simon Price himself had the very uh, great clip in the show where he says, we were building to this, this, this moment and then it had to crash. And then, you know, it was a big moment. Like we make the the uh, uh, um, case that uh, Britpop kind of drove the emergence of uh, uh, Tony Blair as a political figure. You know, one of the five most powerful people in the world driven by a, a music pop movement. I mean, where do you go from there? The only and. And again, Simon was making the point, like, you know, you get a lot of these bands kind of jump on this bandwagon. Right. So when you're jumping on a bandwagon and you don't have a unique vision, I mean, are you start to wonder to yourself, like, how uh, much of an artist are those bands? So it kind of became clear that this sort of, you know, back to your tabloid thing, this tabloid driven movement uh, um, was only going to be survived by the bands that actually had something more to say. And in very much so shown by someone like Blur, who basically reinvented themselves by rejecting the very movement that they had created. Yeah, it's interesting. I, and, you know, Reg um, explores this in the episode when we're talking about bands that then a adopt even that Britpop hat so they can be a part of this because the British media system is so hungry, or at least it was in the pre-internet 
pre-internet age as we were sort of dealing with in this episode. But there's only so many profiles. There's only so many singles. There's only so many albums that can come out from a limited pool of bands if you're necessarily looking at um, groups that are part of the UK. And as Mark was saying earlier in the podcast, the UK is one time zone. So NME comes out at the same time every week. If somebody's on top of the pops, the entire country is watching it at the same time and can absorb it and talk about it the next morning. You hear things on BBC six at the same time. And it's, you know, we experienced that sort of in the internet age, but our focus is splintered now. Then it was hyper-focused and you would actually know the new look or the new outfit right away. So that meant it was, it burned bright. It was a big bonfire but there's only so much fuel that can go around. So we see that as other people are trying to get, you know, to continue the metaphor, (laughs) shine a little bit of the light that was glowing, Tony Blair, et cetera, that were trying to make it something bigger or the Spice Girls that were adopting some of that look um, into the pop realm and into the more bubblegum pop realm. But it can only go so far. There's only so many people, they're human beings. And you see that in the episode too, like, these are people that hung out at a the good mixer, or they went to Groucho's Club, or they were at the Savage and Best offices. These are people in a community. They're human beings. There's only so much you can do. So it's not an endless pool. And the pool had a good moment. It was very influential, but it could only last for so long. Now talk a bit about how the episode's put together. There are these kind of playful animations and cutouts and sort of fake tabloids that support and drive the narrative of certain sections. What was the inspiration for those visual editions and how do you think it supported the overall storytelling? Well, I mean, rip pop is driven is like a real media driven uh, um, creation. So we wanted to do something that was reflective of that idea, you know, something like uh, we, we don't quite get it in the internet age now, but yeah, you used to pick up those music uh, um, weeklies like the enemy and so on. And that's, that's where you like learned about the, uh, the bands and the, the, the style, like Simon says in the uh, um, show, you know, about grunge being barrier chest, whereas there was a bit more style and in, in, uh, thought put into the uh, visual presentation of uh, Britpop. So we wanted to reflect that kind of uh, style and uh, uh, visual uh, aspect, you know, it, it kind of started with uh, um, actually a, a clip from Simon where he said he, he addresses this and says, uh, um, you know, British bands are always a little bit more ironic and the knowing, you know, they had the knowing wink, right? And you know, our archive uh, producer, the lovely Emma, found a uh, shot of a uh, boy George looking at the camera, and I was just said to our uh, visual designer Derek Tokar, can we, can we make this uh, boy George wink? Right. And get a little bit of a laugh, you know, because uh, there's a, there's a kind of a, a pompous seriousness to some of Brit pop that needs to have the, the piss taken out of it. You know, I mean, fortunately, the British uh, uh, traffic and piss taking. So, you know, they are they're very good at uh, uh, having it done to them. So I thought that that would be kind of an aesthetic to kind of r- run through the whole thing. It's just like, you know, uh, a, a little piss take both both at Britpop and, and at the viewer a little bit. Now, even though Oasis is obviously a huge part of this episode, uh, members of the band don't actually appear. 
that may surprise a viewer because uh, you'd swear you were hearing from them in the episode. Uh, obviously, the brothers from Oasis, the Gallaghers, are uh, famously kind of uh, prickly and disagreeable. I'm wondering if you guys have any stories about the uh, efforts or turmoil to try to book them and nail them into a chair for an interview. Yeah, so we had an amazing talent booker, Susan Schaefer, uh, across the series. And I actually messaged her before we started doing this podcast, thinking, I was like, I remember talking about trying to get Oasis. And I know it was an ongoing thing, but I wanted to know from her what we said. So talking to her and looking through our emails, I think we got around the office, we were just saying to each other, Liam told us to F right off. But really, the email said, Liam does not have any time for this project, which I don't know if that's better or worse um, with uh, Noel because he has uh, his new band and it was actually coming through Toronto when we were shooting. We really tried and um, presented many different things, but it was interesting uh, going to Noel's people and also Blur's management who were very helpful and gave us a ton of archive material to be able to do this. And also two of the members of Blur are in this. Um, they ended up being super helpful and a great uh, resource. But they, when we first told them, hey, we're doing this episode on the Battle of Rip-Pop, you know, these eight days in August where we look at the head-to-head, they basically told us to drop dead with that too. They were so sick of talking about it. And, you know, we're Canadians, so we have a different POV on, on what Rip-Pop is. Um, if you're British and if you're the face of Rip-Pop, you've had enough television shows and radio programs and films in the UK for 25 years talking about that one moment. Nobody wants to talk about it anymore. So that was also part of us stepping back from just focusing on that battle, which still would be an amazing 30 for 30 if we end up going there. But to step back and to look at the other players um, of that time, which I think made for a stronger episode overall, because the people involved are sick of talking about it. And when you're making a documentary and not just using audio clips or archive um, clips of them speaking about the topic, when you actually are with the flesh and blood person, you have to respect who they are, what they want to talk about and what, you know, how they felt in the moment. So if they're telling us they're done talking about rip pop and you do get a bit of a sense of that in the episode, when you hear from Alex James and from Dave, the drummer from Blur, um, yeah, you you realize, okay, if you're British, maybe you're a bit over Britpop. But if you're the rest of the world, you don't know all the nitty gritty. So we try to straddle the line between those two. Um, well, to, you, you may not have got the Gallagher brothers, but I mean, you know, they say that some say, I guess, that Brian Epstein is the fifth Beatle. And if there's a third Gallagher brother, it's probably Alan McGee, uh, who we do hear from. Uh, tell, tell us a bit about meeting Alan and how his story shaped the episode. And I believe you have the credit of getting there first, because isn't Danny Boyle executive producing a comedy movie about the life of Alan McGee? Yeah, Danny Boyle is, uh, yeah. I, 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 in fact, I thought he, I'd heard he was directing. But anyway, that that uh, you know, uh, um, sort of was announced just as we were coming over to talk to Alan McGee. And, you know, I think Alan McGee was probably of the mind of, oh, okay, I'll do this little thing. And then suddenly he became blew up because of Danny Boyle. And he was like, I'm stuck with these fucking Canadians you know, coming over <laughs> wanting to talk to me. And I remember uh, uh, him coming into the pub the first time and going up to shake his hand and him looking so contemptuously at my hand, and like walking by and going to the bathroom. 
And then he like sat down for the interview and he said, I don't really want to do this. So let's get it over with sort of time. And then, you know, he'd, he'd answer a question, but if a question was one he didn't want to answer, he'd just be brusquely very dismissive of it. Um, and it was a short, it was probably the shortest interview we did. It was like 30 minutes long. You know, I'm surprised at how much great stuff we got out of it. But then at the end, Talking to him afterwards, I kind of told him, hey, man, you know, uh, I, I bought the first Jesus and Mary Chain single when I was 19, you know, and I've started a, somehow I've started a record label with these guys. And, you know, here's our box set. Well, as it turns out, he had just started his own vinyl record label and uh, was was knocked out by the fact that they had these new vinyl charts in Britain and his latest release had just gotten to number one, which meant it had sold about 250 copies. And suddenly, you know, we're outside getting pictures taken together. He's holding up my box set. And, and we were like the best of friends. Well, Reg, there's a lesson here between this and the cab driver. You should try to ingratiate yourself to people beforehand. <laughs> and then they'll be nice to you the whole time instead of waiting to the end. But well, it was. That's was just kind matters. of like, you know, being kind of meek guy to Alan. I think he's like, Alan's the guy that if he's in prison and you get into prison, you got to punch him yeah. in the face first. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, I was there too. And I would say across the, uh, across the entire series, it was definitely the most tense interview, but, and Reg, I don't even know. I, I don't feel like it was a 30 minute interview. I think it was like 17 minutes <laughs> and there's probably clips from every single answer that he actually gave us, except the ones where he told you he, didn't want to talk to you about that and move on now or he'll walk. So yeah, I was trying to get him to sign a release form before we go, because I also knew a, he was two hours late for that interview and B he had to go somewhere right after, um, as he told, as he told us. So I was trying to get him to sign a release form just so that we wouldn't have any business at the end. And he just told me, he just glared at me with icy eyes and saying, well, we'll see how you do. We'll see if I like this interview, if I sign it or not. And as a producer, <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of deep feelings. So we're just all on tenterhooks. I mean, Reg handled it really well and wasn't taking it personally, this um, very gruff man. But, you know, I, I've known Mark Brown, who was in the first part of this podcast for, I don't know, 20 plus years. And he worked for Alan McGee. So I was really excited to get Alan McGee for this episode, just kind of knowing how he would be, how he presented on the day is exactly as Mark would have told me about him back in the day. And um, and there's a reason that Danny Boyle is doing a, a project on him because he is this guy, you know, uh, and this important man in music. But yeah, it was um, extremely intense. And let's just say we send an email to everyone and I say it right before, please don't wear any logos. We can't, <laughs> we can't uh, clear logos for our show. It's kind of a problem. So just a plain shirt, if you don't mind. And the guy came in the biggest fuck you Adidas, like from chin to waist. Um, sure. But, you know, as we just talked about, we're like, well, if the lawyers want to talk to us, we'll just say this is an important part of Britpop. And there's no way that Alan McGee would be wearing a vintage Adidas outfit. So it's not a logo. It's a way of life. And that's just <laughs> what we have to say. Well, no, nobody's driven up Adidas stock higher than Alan McGee in Oasis. <laughs> Maybe run DMC, I guess. But, uh, 
It's funny when you talk about this stuff because I actually, in a way, find it kind of refreshing. Like we talk a lot about myth making and irony and these larger than life personalities when it comes to Britpop and all this. In a way, it's nice to know that, you know, when you hear that someone has, you know, a disagreeable prickly personality that you meet them and they're a bit of a disagreeable prick. It seems, uh, you know, at least it's not a put on, if that makes sense. Well, Alan McGee was not a put on. <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> Well, we can leave it at that. Uh, I think it's safe to say that of the series, this is the most piss-taking episode. Uh, so, Reg Harkema, director, Amanda Burt, series producer, thank you for chatting with me. It's always a pleasure just to talk to you, even if it's not recorded on a microphone. Totally, John. Totally. We should talk again soon. <laughs> Thanks, John. In this episode, we have Simon Price and Mark Brown joining us. Simon Price is a British music journalist and author. He was the music editor of Melody Maker between 1988 and 1997 and is the author of Everything, a book about Manic Street Preachers. Mark Brown worked in A&R at the legendary Creation Records, then at Alan McGee's Pop Tones. And in 2015, Mark founded Beta a platform for music before it's on streaming platforms. Hello, Simon. Hello, Mark. Hi. Hey, how's it going? It's going okay. Thank you for asking. Um, now, let's talk Britpop. First of all, is Britpop a dirty word? I feel like in the episode, every time it's used, people kind of use it with a bit of a wince or a cringe or something like that. I think it's become one, yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think um, a lot of the sort of... Uh, vibrance and exuberance and uh, uh, optimism uh, that propelled it at the time has now soured a little bit and a lot of people are just a little bit embarrassed that they got caught up in it. I, I, I would I would tend to agree and I would think it's something, it's natural that thing, things like that get so overblown that uh, they lose the thing that made it special at the start, I think. Well, let's talk about what made it special. I mean, do you think that this phenomenon, especially the idea of foregrounding the Britishness and the national identity, that it was particular to this time and place? I mean, I'm scratching my head and it's hard to conceive of a movement called like American pop or Yank pop or something like that. Well, I mean, I think it had to happen for exactly those reasons because um, uh, British independent music at the end of the 80s and the start of the 90s was in a very strange place. It was quite kind of blank and quite devoid of character or characters, plural, and personalities, um, except perhaps things like the Happy Mondays. But um, it, it had nothing to say about the actual lived experience of being British or being in Britain. Um, you had the sort of shoegazer bands who were very blank and uh, very vague. The lyrics were just kind of nothingness. And uh, they were almost impossible to decipher when you listen to those records. Then you had the kind of baggy Manchester band, indie dance bands, and the lyrics are mostly just about getting high, getting out of your face, you know. So it's not surprising that British youth at that time was looking elsewhere. British youth was being attracted to American bands like Nirvana, who, you know, at least had some kind of energy to them and and and, and some sort of message. But that led to a situation where, you know, Britain, formerly the coloniser, became the colonised. And... and there was this, I, in, in the documentary, uh, I, I talked about this kind of cultural cringe phenomenon where we felt inferior to American culture. We all bowed down to American music and considered ourselves inferior. So, you know, you had British music journalists 
who was spending half the year in Seattle and coming back talking in American accents. And you had British teenagers wearing lumberjack shirts and, and British bands trying to play grunge. So that, you know, something had to change so that the, the space was there, the moment was there for Britpop to happen. And I, I from watching the um, program yesterday, I was, I found the connection between the visual art element and Britpop very interesting, that there was a lot of powerful things happening in, you know, popular culture in, in the early 90s. And then also, I didn't realize since it's so long ago, that tight connection between the fact that Nirvana was just pre-Britpop and how the Blur guys talked about that a lot, how th what they were doing became quite a big reaction to what was going on in the States. Because for, my, for that period, for me, I was actually in Canada. So I was seeing it from a completely different angle. And I think that contrast is fascinating. I think Simon's completely right that the, re the, the back and forth between the US and the UK, I think has been a, quite a big deal throughout popular music for the last 40 years. Yeah, and I'm wondering how Britpop and how what was happening in pop culture at the time, you know, how you can use pop culture as a vehicle for national identity. And it occurs to me that there's a line there, right? I mean, I was going back to listening to some music from the 80s, like Union Jack by Big Audio Dynamite, which I'm like, oh, this is kind of very proudly British, almost sounds like a football anthem, almost a little cartoony. And then fast forward to Cool Britannia, you know, in the late 90s, I mean, what is the sort of line that the Britpop movement was riding where it was about the British experience and British culture, but it didn't quite seem like a cartoon? There definitely is a line and it definitely did tip over that line at a certain point and you can trace it sequentially. I mean, for me, the first Britpop band was Saint Etienne and I know they didn't really mean much in North America, but they were the first band to kind of understand that um, this kind of lived experience of Britishness was not being sort of expressed. They, they were formed in Croydon in 1990. And um, that they that their records are kind of this collage of audio samples of 1960s, particularly 1960s things like Dusty Springfield records, British pop records, and British films, like old black and white things like Billy Liar. And they were sort of weaving this together with lyrics which referenced London and England. And, um, and they, they sort of melted together with contemporary British dance music and made this really uniquely British thing. And even though they never made it huge, they they were kind of the instigators, I would say. And also their support bands around that time included Oasis and Pulp. So they were right there. Um, but, you know, um, that aesthetic, the first band to come along with a recognisably British sound, I would say, or Britpop, proto-Britpop sound was Suede. And the thing with Suede was that, you know, they were drawing upon glam rock, um, Bowie and Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel and T-Rex and things like that. And they had in Brett Anderson that kind of classic, very English androgynous front person. But they were singing about living in council estates in quite a sort of romanticised way. And they were sort of singing about um, the underclass and, and people who were of uh, indeterminate gender and sexuality and all these kind of interesting things which had been banished from pop for about... 10 years and, and but had previously been really central to what British music was about. So um, things were starting to happen with them. And then you've got um, uh, Blur, who previously been a shoegaze band, and they suddenly sort of switched around with the al album Modern Life is Rubbish and started, you know, singing in this Mockney accent uh, 
and um, drawing upon things like the Kinks and uh, um, the lead single from the album was For Tomorrow, uh, which references the Westway, which is this kind of iconic motorway exit from London. And uh, the video had all these kind of things like red phone boxes and and uh, Routemaster buses and even the Houses of Parliament and stuff like that. The symbolism was becoming so blatant. And all, all of this was, I guess it was a fight back to begin with against, against the Americanism. But there, there does come a point where that expression of lived Britishness did tip over into the more kind of ugly aspects of patriotism or nationalism, if you want to call it that. Well, I'm wondering how much of it was a reaction and how much of it was almost a a shrug that, well, okay, Nirvana defines the sound now. The USA is kind of running the table in terms of rock and pop music. Now that kind of frees us to do as we please. Uh, was there any of that, or was it deliberately a kind of uh, a strike back against this American dominance? Um, I I think it was a strike back, and, and we see. I mean, you know, Blur wrote a song called "Magic America," that's kind of making fun of of, of the way in which certain British people idolised um, American culture. And then you had the infamous thing with with Select magazine. This was April nineteen ninety three when Select ran a Britpop front cover with the headline "Yanks Go Home." Uh, and Brett, Brett, yeah, and uh, Brett, Brett Anderson was uh, superimposed over the Union Jack without Brett's knowledge. By the way, he, he was appalled when it happened. But even the symbolism of the Union Jack itself is something that sort of shifted back and forth over time, from positive to negative. I mean, in the early 20th century, obviously, it was a symbol of empire and uh, which, uh, Britain's violent subordination of, of other countries. But I suppose it was redeemed in the Second World War as a more positive thing. Then the 60s particularly became a, a sort of pop art icon. You had the Kinks and the Who uh, wearing Union Jack suits and Peter Blake, the artist, painting the, the flag and all of that. But by the 70s, it became associated with more negative things like racism, the far right, the National Front political party and so on. And this is despite the attempts of the jam to make it a mod thing. Uh, it, it remains a negative thing for a long time. And as recently as 1992, Morrissey uh, got all kinds of trouble for... Um, waving the Union Jack around on stage and was branded a racist for doing that. I mean, it later turned out there were plenty of other reasons to accuse him of that. Uh, but uh, but uh, all I'm saying is three years after that, you, you suddenly had Noel Gallagher playing a Union Jack guitar. And then a year later, you had Jerry Halliwell from the Spice Girls wearing a Union Jack dress. And suddenly it's all fine again. And it was Britpop that had done that. But I, I would say that... Uh, in, in that sort of three-year gap between that that Yanks Go Home front cover and then the Spice Girls, so, something had been lost from the, the initial idea of what Britpop was, and it had tipped over into quite simplistic and slightly ugly patriotism. Now, Mark, a question for you, because as you mentioned, you were in Canada when a lot of this was happening. I mean, what were the sort of misconceptions or the myths about Britpop? I mean, how was it uh, perceived I hate to say in the colonies, but in the Commonwealth. <laughs> well, I like I, that's a super interesting question because I think a lot of what Simon's talking about after I lived in the UK for 18 years, those nuances are very easy to understand if you're if you come from the UK or have lived there. But as someone who lived outside of the UK, there's a irrespective of what music was popular, be that from North America or from the UK, there was always an eye on what was going on in the UK. So I think, you know, I remember distinctly the first time I heard Oasis, all those bands, all those creation bands, Simon referenced, um, 
Bob Stanley and Saint Etienne, like all those bands, if you liked British music, were well known. And I think so what what was coming across the pond, I think, was just it was mostly about the music. I think it would have been very difficult for people in in the US to understand or in North America to understand the nuances that Simon are talking about, just purely because a lot of it was self-reflective being, you know, so the fact that Blur would be from London and then, you know, Oasis from Manchester to understand those cultural differences. Like that, that's like, and the, the, the level of, you know, that you could argue Blur were trying to be more posh, Oasis were the opposite. That framework is, wouldn't have translated across the pond in the same way. I don't think maybe Simon, you would have a different view of that, but that would be my take. No, I completely agree that some of those geographical nuances are lost and that, you know, I've seen Oasis referred to as Cockneys and it's like, <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it was quite a kind of nuanced movement, if you can call it a movement at first. So yeah, you had these tropes falling into place, like Brett and Damon both singing in a Cockney slash Mockney accent, which drew upon people like Steve Harley, Dave, early David Bowie and Anthony Newley, who David Bowie was... Uh, himself influenced by but there was there, there was a lot uh, there, there was a lot of variety and pluralism in the early phase of Britpop you know you, you had Corner Shop who were a British Asian band singing from a British Asian perspective um, you had Denim who's a guy from the Midlands who obsessed, who's obsessed with the kind of forgotten trash of the British 1970s and then you had these quite literate, witty bands like Divine Comedy writing orchestral pop and My Life Story or another one of those. There are quite a few female-fronted bands as well. So, you know, it's Sleeper, Echo Belly, Elastica, Catatonia. So it wasn't all lads, lads, lads at first, although sadly that's kind of what it sort of degenerated into. Well, and let's put aside the sort of uh, perspective from North America for a second. You know, Simon, as someone who worked in the media, how much did the media sort of work to build up these myths or to sort of play into misconceptions or stereotypes around the major players in Britpop, you know, whether it's Oasis or Blur? It, it, it seemed like this conflict was almost a gift to the press or this yeah. perceived conflict. I mean, guilty as a member of the press. Yeah, the, the press was completely guilty of this, of uh, kind of um, making these already cartoonish figures into, you know, ev even more sort of caricatures. So um, the the image that Oasis had, and they profited from, um, you know, very, very successfully, was that they were these down-to-earth, normal, northern working-class lads. Uh, and then in the views of the press, who were quite predominantly sort of southern middle-class writers, that became the stereotype. That became what working-class people were allowed to be. Um, you know, these kind of knuckle-dragging, boorish, oafish, loutish lads wearing bucket hats and swilling pints of lager and going to football matches and doing that kind of bandy-legged walk as if they just shat their trousers going, oi, oi, and that kind of thing. You know, that's what it kind of became. And, and you saw people who weren't even from the North and weren't working class trying to be that, trying to be that guy because it was cool. And um, But uh, the, around the fringes of this, you had much more interesting things going on. I mean... Uh, Obviously, being Welsh and being a Manic Street Preacher's biographer, I'm going to mention them. But it's interesting to me that Oasis were proudly anti-literate. They made a big thing that they never never read books. Whereas the biggest hit the Manics had during the Britpop era, Design for Life, begins with the words, libraries gave us power. And they wore their 
education on their sleeves, and they were just as working class as the Gallagher brothers. And then he had someone like Jarvis Cocker, you know, so Pulp writing from the point of view of the outsider. Um, they were, you know, very much singing about the lived working class experience of the north of England, but speaking out for the for the freaks and the weirdos and um, and people that didn't fit in. That's explicitly what Pulp were about. So there, there were things kind of around the edge of, of these two central bands, Blur and Oasis. If you just look a little bit further out, there, there was something more interesting going on usually. Well, on the subject on the people on the edges, I mean, we meet some women and some racialized people in this documentary. I mean, what do their experiences on the sort of periphery of Britpop tell us about the reality of the movement? I think that the most uncomfortable thing about watching that documentary is remembering back to the laddie element of it and the fact that it was just about white guys and women with large breasts on the copy of magazines. And I think that was a terrible, terribly embarrassing thing to see for even just 20 years ago. But as Simon mentioned, it is interesting that the central bands fit a, a white lad image but the fact was that it was a lot more diverse around like what did you mention was it echo belly and then corner yeah Shop. yeah and so like i think simon could speak more more to that but I, that was one of the things when you look back even 25 years ago just how uncomfortable some of it was and then some of it became towards the end well, we have all that junk in North America too, like Maxim and FHM magazine and those sort of, you know, chauvinist rags. But I think the difference with lad culture is that it was cool. Like if you read Maxim or FHM, you were kind of like a, a loser, basically. You was into, <laughs> you know, going to the gym and nice cars and wristwatches and all that stupid stuff. But lad culture kind of translated as being desirable in a way. And loaded, like, oh my God, you know, it, I... Like I cringed when I saw it because I had completely forgotten about that whole thing. Like those magazines were huge, huge magazines back then. And because the other the other thing when you contrast North America and the UK, like the power of the press in the UK to to make something happen, unbelievable. Like the the way Simon talked about that select magazine cover, it's like. The press are very, very, very effective in the UK of moving in a certain direction if they all get behind it. And that's the unfortunate thing about the lad element and all that. It just went and it kept going and going and going and going. I, you know, I don't know what you think about that, Simon, but that was my sort of experience of that. Well, the thing with Loaded Magazine is that it was set up by music press people. The editor was James Brown, who was from the NME. And most of the early writers were drawn from the music press. And so it came at it with a kind of slightly playful, slightly kind of hip aspect to it. And uh, it was, um, I think it, it began as a slightly ironic, guilty pleasure take on, on 1970s sexism, for example. But it didn't take long for that veneer of irony to just fade away, as it always does. And, and so what you're left with is just straight up sexism and homophobia and all the other ugly attitudes that were endemic with within Oasis, uh, I would say, and their kind of fan base and lad culture in general. And the saddest thing, actually, was seeing people who ought to know better. Um, the, the tagline of 
loaded, funnily enough, was for lads who should know better or men who should know better, something like that. But you would see people dumbing themselves down, people that you knew quite well. You knew people who were smart and, you know, much, much, much too good for this. But they put on some vintage Adidas and they play along because they knew that's where the culture was heading and that's where the money was. It's interesting because in this sort of blur oasis dynamic, I think blur is seen as being the cheeky and the uh, ironic one. But as you're describing it, there's so much irony around oasis or at least around their popularity. I think um, a lot of the people who were fans of Oasis were people who were not previously interested in music. Um, if they had been, they were maybe sort of listeners to dance music. They certainly weren't interested in rock. So it drew in a lot of people who didn't come at it with a sort of music press sensibility or the sort of indie sensibility. And, and you know, it is what they wanted. And Oasis sold millions. They, you know, they played Britain's biggest ever outdoor gigs at Nebworth and, and all of that. But they did make the most sort of retrogressive and sort of reductive type of rock music. And the, the lyrics meant nothing, that they exuded this kind of dim-witted aggression. And as I said, they offer this insulting caricature of what it is to be working class. Um, and for many of us, whatever attracted us to Britpop in the first place, this wasn't it. This wasn't what we signed up for. And, well, yeah, and the- I would think, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I, I would think no. like we, we've gone from say Simon mentioning Saint Etienne, who are very thoughtful, very well spoken, well researched. If, you, you know, Bob Stanley's a music writer, and then and then this arc sort of ends with this very extreme caricature version of what, like Simon saying, to be working class. And I think that's a perfect arc to ex- explain what these. Like what a period, a certain period of music is like. It goes from being something; it starts out as something, and then it just becomes this extreme, sort of hollow shell of itself. Because what Simon is saying, I I completely agree with. It's that there was a lot of n- negative things that came out of what people thought Britpop was supposed to be in the end, and so I I think that arc is a pretty good one. Yeah, I'm wondering because it's come up a bit. I mean, if you if you guys would care to discuss the role that class played in this Oasis versus Blur battle, because that's what I mean. Obviously, there are different classes in different countries, but the class tension in the UK uh, is almost defining. Uh, and I wonder if you could speak about class tension and especially the sort of play with class tension, because I think back to even the Beatles and the Stones, right, where the Beatles seem kind of posh and the Stones seem rough and tumble. But in actuality, it was the opposite. The, the, the Stones were the university kids and the, the Beatles were the kind of working class kids. So how do those sort of inversions or almost costumes of class work with Oasis and Blur? You know, I've, I've seen the street where Oasis grew up and it's... Uh, you know, it's, it's got leafier avenues and bigger gardens than anywhere anywhere I've ever lived. So, I think some, sometimes this this stuff is kind of it was it was exaggerated even at the time. Um, but there was an element of class tourism of which Blur was certainly guilty. If you look at something like Girls and Boys, um, where they're singing about the phenomenon of white working class English lads going on Mediterranean holidays. Um, and they're singing about it with this kind of horror and fascination, but also envy. And they're dressing up in the kind of sportswear that those lads would wear, at least in the minds of Damon, in the mind of Damon. Um, and, uh, and and he's singing in what he perceives to be that accent, because even though he comes from Essex, 
he is very much not somebody if you if you hear him talk in his normal voice that's not what he sounds like so so that that element of class tourism it is something i mean for me the greatest Britpop single of all was common people by pulp and in that jarvis cocker completely skewers mercilessly skewers that kind of class tourism of people slumming it because they think it's cool um and it it's it's hard to think that he didn't partly at least have people like like Damon in mind. I, w- I was going to bring that exact single up, so I'm glad you beat me to it. I mean, is there a blur in an oasis uh, of the 21st century in the UK music scene? I mean, do we see these these tensions or similar tensions playing out in a kind of uh, eternal recurrence? I, I was thinking about that, and I think another big point to think about here is this idea that because it was mentioned in the in the episode, this idea that there's only one time zone in the UK, and the fact that that there, you know, and if you look at the press, like even you know, say Fleet Street, all the media would used to be on the same street or whatever, and so back in the mid '90s, you could still have everybody focus on one thing, yeah, and that focus has so, and that's a hyper 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 extreme version of anywhere else in the world where everything is so focused one city one time zone everything and so to answer your question about are is this possible now people's attention is so di- diversified in other directions that it seems like i remember bands 10 years later so the you know 20 2003 or whatever even then it was starting to splinter that you wouldn't have the same focus on records that sold millions and millions of copies in the same way so i would question if if it's ever going to be possible again i you know i don't know what simon would think about that but i think people are looking in so many different places now that it's hard to get people's attention to make those things those rivalries work well music just isn't essential to the culture anymore um in 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 the way that it was then um but you're absolutely right that something about britain being a small country um has had a profound effect on the on the rapid turnover of styles and movements that it's had um because uh it's possible for something to be brand new and hip in london on a, a Thursday afternoon, and by Friday or Saturday, everybody in Manchester knows about it. Um, obviously, I'm talking about the pre-internet age because now everything just happens at the, the, the click of a button. But um, I think uh, th- this is why things tended to move a lot more slowly in North America, because if, f- for a band to break the United States could take two years, three years of non-stop touring in the old days. And if you commit to doing that, then by the time you finally come home to the UK completely worn out. Um, everybody's forgotten about you back home. You're, you're finished. So um, this is this is why uh, Britpop was, it, 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 was, it, was a, it was a perfect storm in that it was located within one country. I think, uh, you know, most of the main Britpop bands didn't do very well at uh, uh, exporting themselves because it was very inward looking. And, and, uh, and Mark will know this, that there were certain pubs in London where all the music journalists would drink. You'd have everybody from the NME, from Melody Maker, and all the other magazines would be in a particular pub on a Friday afternoon. There were pubs in Camden where all the bands would drink. And there was something quite conspiratorial about it. So when you had Blur versus Oasis, it's the same as uh, in the 60s, the Beatles and the Stones, uh, where Andrew uh, Lou Goldham and uh, uh, Brian Epstein um, 
kind of concocted it between themselves in, in, in a friendly way. And they would stagger their record releases to give each other a chance of hitting number one. With Blue versus Oasis, it was the opposite. They kind of conspired to release on the same day. So you had uh, Alan McGee, who's the you know Creation Records, the man behind Oasis, and Andy Ross, the manager of Blur. Um, you know, working this out between them that uh, they they could um, get a huge amount of mainstream media publicity outside of the pages of the music press by doing this this so-called battle of Britpop, and so it transpired. You know, they were on the national TV news, which for rock bands hadn't really happened for 20 or 30 years. And with singles in both cases, I don't think anyone necessarily remembers as being <laughs> favorites. No. Um, and, to, and there, to there talk was this a bit thing about that, that. Oh, go ahead, Simon. Oh, I was just going to say that uh, there was this tendency for people to sort of almost grab you by the lapels and say, who do you prefer? Whose side are you on? Are you Blur or are you Oasis? And the, the only thing that any intelligent or dignified people would do would be so well, well none of the above you know um i prefer um pulp or suede or the manic street preachers or or something a million miles from Britpop like wu-tang clan or, or whatever it may be rather than be coerced into this 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 binary choice but uh, uh they they certainly did a good job of enforcing that on on a lot of the population and making it seem to the media that you had to be one or the other as Bartleby says in Herman Melville's story, I prefer not to. That's how you should always respond <laughs> to those binary choices. Um, now, to talk a bit about these these flows between the continents, uh, you know, we talked a bit about Britpop emerging as a reaction to America and to grunge. Blur's obviously biggest single, at least in North America, was Song 2, which again, almost seems like an ironized parody of a grunge song, you know, five or six years later. And I'm wondering what influence the Britpop movement had on the larger kind of world of pop music, especially as, you know, we moved into the ascendancy of, uh, I guess, what we now call as a sound indie rock in the late 90s into the 2000s. I say one of the problems with Britpop, it was the, it was the first youth culture um, that I can think of that was entirely based on looking backwards. And that can be exciting at first, but when it runs out of steam, you're then left with nothing new or useful to give. So it was a sort of cultural dead end. Uh, I mean, in this country, uh, after um, Britpop kind of wound down, we had endless sub-Oasis and sub-Blur bands coming along with diminishing returns. But because Oasis had shown that it was possible to fill arenas and fill stadia, with anthemic indie rock. There was this kind of next wave of people like Stereophonics and Travis and Snow Patrol and a little bit later Coldplay. And the clothes got baggier and the songs got slower and more boring. And in fact, the, the term, the new boring became a thing around this time. Um, so I, I would say it had a kind of a negative hangover in Britain. In, in America, and I obviously I'm only seeing this from a British perspective, and this is only stuff that, that reached me, but it, it seemed that in the 90s, American rock had been kind of dominated by, I mean, on the one hand, you still had these kind of bloated rock dinosaurs like Pearl Jam, Stone Temple Pilots, sort of beating their chests and singing in quite a macho way about, you know, their, their angst um, and, and bearing their souls. And you had these sort of new metal bands like Papa Roach or Linkin Park who were kind of, you know, essentially um, refusing to, clean their bedrooms and and then you, you had um these, these kind of pop punk bands like blink 182 and, and good charlotte who were just just frat boys really who who who'd been to hot topic and and it was all it just seemed desperately uncool and embarrassing and what i think what happened was uh, in the noughties was that american bands seemed to belatedly rediscover 
cool, the idea of cool, uh, and to sharpen up their look and their sound. And they did that by looking backwards. So it's quite a Britpop move. So, you know, right. New, New York New York bands in particular, New, New York became New York again. And Manhattan 2001 was in love with Manhattan 1976. And, and you know, in, in the same way that London 1995 was in love with London 1966, you had that kind of looking back, I think. So bands like The Strokes and The Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, they wanted to be Blondie or The Ramones or Television or Talking Heads. And, and then elsewhere, you know, you had the White Stripes in Detroit and and the Killers in Las Vegas, who who were also looking backwards, I would say. And then they were very, very image conscious, very retro styled. And that's, to me, that was quite similar to what Elastica particularly had, had done the previous decade, operating with very tight parameters about what they considered cool and uncool. And, and it's worth noting that Elastica before Britpop were um, termed as being part of the new wave of new wave and which is that's a term you could easily have used about the strokes and and the the way these bands like the strokes curated their image uh was so careful and very reminiscent of Britpop's obsession with the past you know so i don't know if you remember but the first photos that anyone saw of the strokes were grainy black and white photos uh and um the, uh, that was hugely symbolic and and the first video that i remember for last night was made to look in this kind of blurry ntsc color uh, as if it was from the late 60s, early 70s or something. And that that's a very Britpop move in a way. It's, it's based on the idea, you know, to quote the Blur album, modern life is rubbish. So you know, sometimes you've got to go backwards to go forwards. It's sort of like, like a reset to progress. And then, then you had bands who were outright Anglophile, I suppose. You had the Dandy Warhols borrowing from Duran Duran and the Rolling Stones. And you had Interpol borrowing from Joy Division and the Smiths. And, you know, while they weren't influenced, influenced directly by Britpop, I would say the source material was British and old. So there's that kind of link. And, you know, the, the Dandy Warhols sounded and looked like a London band and Interpol sounded and looked like a Manchester band. So essentially what happened in America in the 2000s was Britpop, but once removed, if that makes sense. It, it like, I, 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 was, I was thinking about the, uh, um, my answer to this question, I was drawing a blank, but Simon, you're completely correct that like it or not, British cool or, or how anything, things are very stylized in the UK. And they're, uh, even if it doesn't look like it's thought out, it's pretty well thought out. And I think your comparison with the yeah, yeah, yeahs and the strokes is spot on, really, ultimately. That that is the thing that came that comes out of British culture a lot of the time. It's that, that, that things... You know, even Oasis, you, you know, we, we use the term knuckle draggers when you were explaining it. it it's like the, I would I would assume they knew exactly what they were doing at all times and, you know, for, for better or for worse. And I think that legacy on those bands that became because I remember when the Strokes got going in the UK, like it was a big deal. And it was like, who are these people? And like you're talking about like a single photo is a very dramatic thing to mention considering the way the world works now it's like you would never imagine so you know a, a well even you know you know alex james or whatever from blur like the way he talked about how they thought about the record they were going to make and what they were going to do is like things were very thought out and i think what you've explained there simon is a, is a great legacy from rip pop maybe not there weren't 
there were loads of bad things about it, but it reminded people that British people, like the white stripes, like, oh my God, like that is so stylized. And no wonder it blew up in the UK. That blew up in weeks in the UK because of all the things that made Britpop blow up. And I think that legacy uh, coming out of Britpop influence on US music was actually a good thing in a way. Because I think a lot of those bands are great. Like them or not, they're very stylized and it was an exciting time for American music being imported into the UK. I have a question about a, a group that I think uh, feels like kind of an elephant in the room when discussing this, which is uh, how, how did Radiohead kind of change things? I mean, I, I remember the early reaction to Radiohead, especially on Pablo Honey being like, oh, they're trying to sound like R.E.M. or something like that. But clearly by even an album or two later, they tapped into something totally different that didn't feel like Britpop, didn't really feel like U.S. alternative rock. But obviously, you know, they sell out stadiums to this day. So it has, it has a massive appeal. I mean, was it a reaction to to cool Britannia and this sort of calcification of, of Britpop? What was going on there? I think Radiohead were quite lucky or, or quite smart and canny in avoiding being linked to Britpop whatsoever, even though chronologically they were in the right place at the right time. They're even on the right record label, they are on Parlophone slash EMI, which is the home of, of Blur. But um, they were never sort of a fashion band. They never, they never sort of dressed in a particularly stylish way. They weren't pretty boys. And the first album was a little bit underwhelming. I mean, obviously it had Creep on it, which everybody loved. But as an album, it, it wasn't really that great. And it was the second album which, where, where they really showed they had, they had some substance to them. And I think we're talking about an era when record companies would allow you that growth. They they would you know still invest in a band and over a period of three, four, five albums to see where it goes, and they were allowed to do that. I wonder if a band like Radiohead would even get the chance to sort of develop along that career path nowadays. I don't think they would. Like one thing I remember, they they released this EP like in the middle of everything. Like there was something called directed towards the. US or some like North America. And like one of the thing that it came up in the in the in the in the episode and then also you know about it with Oasis that Noel jumped off the tour or whatever. Like I get the impression that Radiohead actually put the time in in the US whereas you know both Blur and Oasis like it's too easy to tour the UK. All these British bands are babies. Because, oh, well, it's only three hours to drive from London to Manchester if you do it at 10 at night. And, you know, they talked about it in, 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 in the show again, like all these long drives. There are, you know, 14 days off to drive, literally to drive. And I think that's the difference with Radiohead. I get the impression that they put the time in in the U.S. where everybody else, all the other bands, they couldn't hack it. They're like oh, flying home because it's too too stressful touring in the US. So that's sort of my view that the that Radiohead maybe thought, okay, we're gonna put the time in and that's why they're still at the level they're at now. I think the, you're the right. Brit pop I mean I should talk to oh sorry. I was just gonna say that the Britpop band should talk to Canadian rock bands about touring Canada <laughs> having a <laughs> solid thirty five to fifty hours between exactly, major cities. Yeah. yeah. I, I think Radiohead respected American North American audiences. They were willing to put the time in. And um when you compare that to Oasis, who went over there, I think, with this kind of arrogant sense of entitlement, like, come on, we're already huge. We're already rock legends. You just have to bow down before us. And of course, American audiences are not going to respond well to that. What do they expect? Um, 
and yeah, even though I'm not a huge Radiohead fan, I've, I've got to respect the way that they've played the long game, definitely. They didn't attach themselves to a, a movement which was clearly sort of t- date-stamped. Um, and, uh, and well, they're, they're, st- they're still essentially uh, a, a living thing and still making music. And they were ahead of the curve of uh, being afraid of your computer before everyone was afraid of their computer in <laughs> True. summer 1999 into the new millennium. Uh, so, guys, just to kind of wrap it up, uh, you know, the name of the series is This Is Pop. So I like to ask at the end of every episode, let's start with you, Simon. What is pop music and how do you think uh, the story of Britpop can illuminate how we make sense of pop music? Well, I think pop music is the ultimate um, art form. I've always thought that because it's kind of vampiric upon everything else. It draws everything in, you know, it's visual art on the record sleeves and poetry and the lyrics and choreography and the dance moves and film in the videos and all of that gets sucked into pop in, in this, this package of the perfect art form. And I think Britpop in particular was a time when bands realised that. Um, I think that had been lost a little bit. Uh, certainly bands in the early 80s were very conscious of that in the, I suppose, what you would think of as the British invasion. But prior to that, the kind of new romantic bands and uh, the ska bands and post-punk bands uh, of that sort of 79 to 83 era, they understood the power of pop, all the different aspects of it. But I think there had become this idea, particularly within alternative music, it's just about the music, man. And, you know, we just play the music and if anyone else likes it, it's a bonus and all of that. But the Britpop bands, love them or hate them, understood the power of all the other stuff the theatre of pop, the way you can play with it and the way you can, you know, blow people's minds or excite people in ways other than just plugging in your guitar. And Mark, how would you respond? How, what's pop music and what can we learn about pop from studying Blur and Oasis? I, I think that the, the hard thing with pop music, it's very hard to put your finger on what it is. But but a, like a quote-unquote perfect pop hit is that one records where just that everybody loves them everybody knows that's a certain record and it's that period where it's just so big and so omnipresent yet hasn't pissed everyone off it's that feeling that it's everybody feels great about it and there's very few records that go past that and you know for years and years later but i think the key with Britpop is that what we see a lot with pop music now that, that things go up very quickly and they come down very, very quickly. And, you know, what blew me away about this episode was just how short this period of music was. And this evolution of new cycles of music is getting faster and faster and faster. And I think that's what's fascinating, that Britpop, all these bands suddenly showed up, and then all of these bands suddenly disappeared. And that's sort of the world we live in today now, many years later where things can be a hit one day and then completely gone by the weekend. So I think that's the thing to remember. It's that, you know, things are moving pretty fast. Well said. Well, Simon Price and Mark Brown were our guests. Thanks for joining us guys. Before we go, is there anything that you would like to shamelessly plug on the podcast? Well, or you can I'm do not- it shamefully for all I care. <laughs> you can be bashful about it. Uh, I'm writing a book about the cure, which uh, isn't going to come out till next year, so everybody will have forgotten by then. But hey, who knows? <laughs> Look out for the book about this called Curepedia by Simon Price in about a year's time. I'll make a Google I, I have, alert. I, I have nothing to plug. I'm not going to plug anything. I'm going to plug Simon's book. I think that's the most important. <laughs> 
Wow, it's the opposite of the Battle of Britpop. We've uh, oh, <laughs> used these sorts of antagonisms, uh, and and now our two guests can just kind of shake hands and say goodbye. Uh, well, thanks again for uh, taking the time to chat, guys. Thanks very Thank much. You. This is Pop is a production by Banger Films. Amanda Burt is our series producer. Reg Harkema is the director of this episode. Dave McMahon is the editor, and Del Cowie is the writer of the episode. This is Pop the Podcast was produced by Melissa Vincent and Matt Charlton at Pigeon Row and engineered by Village Sound. Watch This is Pop on Netflix and follow the show on Instagram.